everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling here with you and with me, as always, is Brandon Odo. Yo. We have another special guest today. Dr. Sean Barnett is with us. He is a major in the United States Air Force, but is uh, also a physician. He's a nephrologist by training, uh, graduating from Toro University in Nevada with his uh, DO degree in 2016, and then doing residency in Ohio at the Wright State Wright-Patterson Joint Civilian Military Residency before completing his nephrology fellowship in Texas. And then over the course of the pandemic, like so many of us, he got a lot of interest in COVID and critical care and majorly focusing on the cardiorenal system, heart failure, volume management. And today we're going to talk about the use of hypertonic saline uh, and maybe some ways that we haven't thought of before. Brandon, you got a case for him? Oh, do I. All right, Sean. So you are covering the nephrology consult service at your unnamed hospital, and you hear about a patient. It's a 69-year-old male. He's got a history of some alcoholic cirrhosis, uh, hef-pef, diabetes mellitus, hypertension, the kind of usual comorbidities. And he presented to the ED there with a, a red, hot, painful left thigh. In the ED, he was hypotensive. He was febrile. The ED staff and general surgery were concerned for a necrotizing fasciitis. So he was admitted to the surgical ICU. He had some lines placed, antibiotics were started, and he went emergently to the OR for surgical exploration of the thigh, which did reveal necrotic tissue, some kind of dishwatery drainage, looking like a necrotizing infection. So it was pretty extensively debrided. In the OR, he had significant hypotension, ended up on norepinephrine, vasopressin, uh, phenylephrine, uh, finally got through the case and came back to the ICU intubated. You hear about him the next day when nephrology is consulted for an acute kidney injury. So since he got back from the OR, his creatinine has continued to rise it's up to 3.4 this morning, just six hours ago. They've been trending it. It was 2.5. And he, when he came in, it was just above one. His BUN is 80, 61, six hours ago. He's still on three vasopressors. He's up to 100% FiO2 on the ventilator with a PEEP of 12. Um, and his chest x-ray this morning shows widespread pulmonary edema. Perhaps not surprising because as of now, he's a little more than six liters positive on his eyes and nose, uh, just after a, a robust fluid resuscitation, which everyone at the time at least felt that he did need. Um, of course, that doesn't include any of his insensible losses from his surgery and oozing and such, but he is still making urine, but it's not a whole lot. It's only about 20 cc's an hour, uh, which is nowhere near what he's getting in, which is over 200 cc's between various drips, and uh, he's on 125 an hour of some maintenance LR. So you hear about him with the question of acute kidney injury. Tell me about some of the thought processes you're having with a patient like this and some of the, the maneuvers or, or tools you have in your arsenal for a guy like this who is obviously septic, clearly has a, a worsening AKI, but is also still in shock and is, is volume overloaded. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so given lots of, lots of things to kind of address there, the most important factor that I would say is once we have kind of the acute kidney injury, the changes in the creatinine, the number itself starts to lose a fair bit of meaning. So the creatinine number itself, basically as it's rising, you can say, okay, it's rising. And at that point, the most important thing to look at is, like you said, the, the urine output. And so 20 cc's an hour is still, you know, at least a little bit, but that basically tells me he's kind of at the bare minimum. His body overall is putting out the bare minimum. Now, could be kidneys are just so shot that they're not going to be able to make any, or they are trying to hold on to basically everything that they can. Now, this is where it gets very, very interesting if you've ever heard of the furosemide stress test or kind of the LASIK stress test. These are the types of scenarios where that maneuver is incredibly useful. So real quick, I want to put the patient on pause and I just want to go over kind of what the furosemide stress test is and then we'll jump right back to him. When you're trying to see if the you know kidneys are shot, if they're going to be able to do anything, you do the furosemide stress test. So you give them a big dose of furosemide and you see, so all of your diuretics, including the loops, work from the urinary side, which means they have to be filtered through the kidneys and into the urine in order to work. So if you're trying to assess whether or not the kidneys are filtering anything, it's great to use something like furosemide that you'll see a visible impact of. So if it gets filtered, the furosemide, a significant amount gets filtered, and their urine output increases, you know that the kidneys are still at least doing something. And I, I'm going to, you know, say something because we really don't know how much they're going to help us, but they're at least there to help us a little bit. Now, of course, it's a little tough in a patient that is already hypotensive because if your blood pressure is low, kidneys aren't going to work no matter what. Even the healthiest kidneys don't work with low blood pressures. So when you have a patient like this, it's tough because, you know, we kind of want the blood pressures to be high enough I don't want to close too much of his blood vessels using really high doses of pressors. And I also really don't want to keep giving this guy more fluids. So the first thing that I would say, once your urine output is decreasing like this, stop the maintenance fluids. Because at this point, maintenance fluids are not going to help us. Maintenance fluids are just basically going to build up and build up and build up. And then he's, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 liters. If you are going to use fluids, specifically for blood pressures, you have to give it as a bolus to see if it works. And basically you give it, watch and wait, and if it doesn't work, you basically say this patient does not need more fluids. More fluids are only going to hurt us, especially in the SICU, as opposed to help us with anything. It's also a little tough because when you mention the guy's already six liters positive, we don't really want to give too much fluid. And so this is where the old adage kind of comes in of, oh, well, this is where, and I'm imagining this guy as being fairly edematous. You said he's got, you know, pulmonary edema, but I'm going to assume legs pretty, at the very least, the neck fascia leg pretty edematous. We'll just say that he's kind of edematous everywhere. And so the old thought process of, well, this is where you give albumin, right? Albumin's the great thing that we want to give to these guys. And I would assume this patient's albumin is going to be, you know, maybe it's 3.2 or 3.3 or it's a little low. The real tricky part is the reason that our studies have never really panned out with albumin to show us consistent significant benefit is because our blood vessels are permeable to albumin. So when you give albumin, some of it leaks out of the blood vessels on their own. And in particular, in a patient who is septic, 
So the septic trials that looked at albumin, that's the albios trial specifically, actually showed harm, showed the potential for harm from albumin, which if you think about that, it makes sense. Sepsis is a high permeability state. So the more permeable your blood vessels are, the more of that albumin just leaks out. And I think that's where the old thought, the kind of surgical mindset of, well, if you give albumin, it's just going to leak out into the lungs. I think that's kind of where that um, thought process came from. Now, one of the more interesting ways that you can truly test the kidney function using the furosemide stress test, improve the blood pressures, and significantly improve just overall blood flow to and through the kidneys is if you use something like a hypertonic solution. So my personal favorite is 3% saline, um, especially in a situation like this, because number one, if this gentleman, let's say his blood pressures are starting to dip a little bit more, he's already pretty fluid up. I don't necessarily want to give him more fluids. And I don't necessarily just want to keep cranking the pressure. So at this point, instead of giving him, you know, a bolus, 500 of his LR or giving him a liter of anything, if I just give him 100 ml of 3% saline, that gives you about the same amount of intravascular volume as a liter of any other kind of various crystalloids. So I don't know how much you guys want to dive into the physiology specifically, but basically when you give a liter of normal saline, you only have about 200 to 300 of that that stays in the vascular space. So we lose a lot of that out. When you give 100 mLs of 3% saline, same thing. You actually get about 200 to 300 mLs in the vascular space where you kind of pull the patient's fluid literally back into the blood vessel. That's where it's useful kind of on its own as an IV fluid, especially for little boluses. Because the nice part there is a liter of normal saline has nine grams of sodium chloride in it. A hundred mLs of three percent has only three grams of sodium chloride in it. So you win the volume battle by nine hundred mLs, and you win the sodium battle by six grams. So you only use one third the amount. Um, when you pair hypertonic salines with the furosemide stress test it gives you an incredible boost to an already good test. So the furosemide stress test, you're basically just checking to see, does their urine output increase? So for a true furosemide stress test, you look at the first two hours. So you give them a dose of Lasix, a heavy dose, one mg per kg if they're Lasix naive, or 1.5 mg per kg if they have been exposed to loop diuretics before. And what you look at is the first two hours. So if at two hours they make 200 milliliters of urine, high likelihood that the kidneys are still there to help us out and do at least something. Now, when you pair that with 3%, the other nice part about 3% is it causes a significant increase in renal blood flow just because of the sodium load itself. The other thing that it does from a rather a very, very pronounced aspect is it shuts off the patient's renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system at the very heart. So basically what is preventing this guy from urinating, even though he has all this fluid, because his blood pressures are low, his RAS system is so high that it's literally not letting the kidneys make enough urine. When you give a hypertonic solution, because you have so much salt that just goes into the kidneys, goes so fast, 
it just shuts off Renin for a period of time. So basically it just hits the stop button and it, number one, lets them get more blood flow to the kidneys. Number two, lets more of that blood flow go through the glomerulus because it's decreasing um, the resistance there. And because you just gave them that massive salt load, that also helps deliver it all the way through the nephron in the urinary side. Pair that with Lasix and you just gave them a massive solute load with a diuretic and you helped increase the blood flow to the kidneys. So basically, if this patient, you know, I was looking at him when we're trying to see, are your kidneys going to be able to help me with this or not? Do I have to start thinking about like dialysis access? That is really where the furosemide stress test alone comes into a serious play of, are we going to potentially need renal replacement therapy or not? The furosemide stress test is well studied and well validated, and we use it quite frequently. The furosemide stress test plus hypertonic saline, in my opinion, is one of the best options, especially for a patient who's already hypotensive, because you really don't want to obviously volume deplete the patient intravascularly, so you're kind of doing that to protect yourself. Also, side note, when most people would reach for albumin in this situation, albumin plus hypertonic saline in all of the studies that have assessed it has an incredible synergistic effect. It almost seems like the combination of hypertonic saline and albumin does allow that fluid to stay intravascularly. So you'll see a significant improvement in hemodynamics for a significant period of time. We're talking about, you know, six to eight hours instead of the typical, like when you give a bolus of any fluid, but whether it's bolus of NS, bolus of 3% or something like that, you know, maybe two to four hours, your hemodynamics will improve. And so that's kind of where it's a little bit like a, sorry, uh, 3% is a little bit like a multi-tool that especially in certain areas, if you use it for the right thing, it can give you a lot of bang for your buck. The other good thing is, especially in a patient that has this ongoing AKI, anything that you can do to increase blood flow to the kidneys is going to help them. So, I mean, we always think about blood pressure initially, but if you physically just went in there and dilated both of those renal arteries, that would also help. I mean, not generally what we want to do is go in and just pop open the blood vessels. But if you did that, the increased blood flow would also help protect those kidneys. So if you have a fluid that can do that, like 3% does, that might also prevent further damage in this guy's kidney. So does that kind of answer the question of like where my thought processes would be going at the very least to start with? Sure. So your uh, recommendations to the team would be from the diagnostic side, or the, I guess the prognostic side, to give them a furosemide stress test in combination with a like a 100cc bolus of 3% saline. Is that about right? Yep. Yep. And then likewise, uh, from the treatment side, also suggesting, listen, if you still feel the urge to volume resuscitate him at all, his pressures are, are dipping, things like that, hold all these drips and things, don't bolus him isotonic fluids, but maybe continue to give, you know, 100, couple hundred cc's of 3% um, as fast boluses. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Now, th- th- you can imagine I'm the ICU team and we're all staring at you incredulously, because uh, of course they have been giving out, al- they have been giving albumin for much the same idea, but they say, you know, listen, it, it, sure, 3% saline is hypertonic. I mean, it, it would make sense that there's a, a transient effect of 
kind of drawing in additional fluid into the intravascular space and, you know, getting sort of more preload than of the actual volume you gave, but it's not a, not a colloid. It is just still sodium and chloride. Surely it's still going to redistribute eventually. So is this, you know, a transient effect and, and the benefit over an isotonic fluid is just that your transient effect only costs you a much smaller, you know, total increase in body water, or is there something fundamentally different that you did to them? Ooh, that is a very good question, and I'm glad you phrased it that way because it lets me say, yes, it is, you know, potentially transient, but also, yes, there is potentially something that you did to the body overall that might help and improve that. So, first of all, as far as transient goes, yes, any fluid that we give as a bolus is kind of the whole, you know, how much benefit did I get out of it and for how long? Because I'm, I'm sure we've all had that. If you give a guy a bolus of 500, of whatever it is, and their blood pressures get better, but you know, within 30 minutes, the blood pressures are dropping down again, and you're like, I can't do this every 30 minutes. Like, that's not a sustained enough impact. Now, any bolus can do that, and especially with the hypertonics, it just kind of sits with the other crystalloids. Of yeah, it, it could be so transient that you're not going to notice much improvement other than you know, 30 minutes to an hour. In my experience, and I, I mean, I do use this quite a bit when I can, when I can, you know, convince these ICU teams that I'm talking to that I'm not crazy, I promise, it actually is pretty pronounced that you're going to get at least a one to two hour type of benefit out of it, potentially more than that. And I will caveat this by saying I've never needed to use more than 300 mLs in an entire day to, for any of the purposes that I've used it for. So when it comes back to, or did, and your second part of that question, or did you change something in the patient kind of fundamentally that would fix many of these, you know, problematic processes? And in my opinion, this is where it gets a little bit into the physiology side of things. You did because what controls your blood vessels permeability, basically how leaky you are, is angiotensin 2. So your angiotensin II is not just a vasoconstrictor. It is. It absolutely is. But it is also what controls how leaky your blood vessels are. So high RAS states are high capillary leak states. That's why our nephrotic syndrome patients are the ones that swell up like, like a balloon because they are so high RAS that they just leak all of this fluid out. Now, first of all, when you give a bolus of 3%, even 100 ml, that is the most potent renin inhibitor that we have in all of hospital or all of medicine or even all of physiology. So when you do that, you're basically, again, shutting off renin that is going to significantly decrease the overall RAS system kind of as a cascade, that you are fundamentally changing how leaky their blood vessels are. So not only did you pull a bunch more fluid back into the blood vessels real quick, you also kind of diffusely told the body like, hey, don't leak so much. Like you, you kind of need to stop that. Then it depends on, you know, how sick the patient is. Is the patient so sick that I block that for a little bit and we're going to get, you know, an hour or two of benefit? Or was this guy, you know, we finally got the next fash under control. We got the septic part of it under control that he was going to get a little bit better. He just needed a little bit of a boost. In which case, you might see a more pronounced, you know, a longer four to six hour benefit of it. Or, especially if this is a patient that is so volume overloaded that he was in a little bit of a heart failure type situation, 
that not only you had the high RAS from him overall being sick, but you had the high RAS and the high ADH from him being heart failure with either significant congestion or, you know, poor LV, um, LV function. Now you are actually starting to get more and more benefits. Um, and I guess I don't want to drop, dive too far into the heart failure side of it without knowing a little bit more about him. But that's kind of how I would answer that. It is definitely potentially transient. But this is where, again, the transient side of it will get prolonged exponentially if you do combine it with the colloid. And this is what I think has been the most interesting about all published literature on colloids versus crystalloids. And then, of course, when we do have those couple of studies, colloids combined with a hypertonic solution, colloids combined with a hypertonic solution far outperform crystalloids on their own and colloids on their own. And they do even outperform hypertonic solutions on their own, specifically relating to the length of impact. So, you know, 100 mLs of 3% plus 100 mLs of 5% albumin will, I can almost guarantee that's going to get somebody a significant blood pressure boost. And it's probably going to last, you know, in the four to six hour range as opposed to the one to two hour range because you are combining them, if that makes sense. And you wouldn't expect to see the same benefit from just using a uh, colloid solution that is hyperosmolar, like a 25% albumin. So unfortunately, no, we have not seen that type of thing match up in any of the literature. And I, I haven't seen that personally as well. Plus, the other thing that you have to worry about is 25% albumin is actually nephrotoxic, where that can actually damage the kidneys themselves. Um, the other difficult part there is if you're just giving a higher concentration of albumin or, uh, well, yeah, we'll stick with that, a higher concentration of albumin, you're not doing anything to address the actual endothelium itself, the vasculature itself. So you're just giving them more albumin that they're potentially going to leak out. That's where the interesting thing is if you can, you know, physiologically control that capillary leak, you can prevent that. Now, either getting the patient better will help prevent some of that leak or blocking angiotensin 2 will help prevent that leak because that's really what controls it. Now, would you expect to see the patient's sodium rising if this is your approach? Or it sounds like, I mean, you said you don't usually end up using more than a few hundred cc's in a day. So I, I would imagine that's not enough to really shift their sodium. Exactly. You'll see transiently. So like when you give it, your next sodium might be two to three points higher. But then as it starts to equilibrate, it really won't change all that much. And even a even an average sized male, so like a 70 kilogram male, 100 cc's of 3% will really only change their sodium overall by like two to three. And so if you give multiples of that, the, the one thing that I always do say, and this is of course a little tough in the surgical ICU and stuff like that, if you are going to be doing this, you have to be giving them enough water. Because if this guy's, you know, NPO and he's only getting LR and nobody's going to be watching to give him D5 and he starts urinating a lot more, then you'll see the sodium rise simply because he's not getting any water into him. But in a general patient, nothing too concerning. And I mean, if they're getting at least some free water flushes, yeah, even if you use 300 cc's in a day, I would be shocked if it changes more than five to six. And you wouldn't recommend administering this as an infusion. You would like to see the boluses, even if they're relatively small boluses. Correct, correct. And that's more of a, because this is the other thing is, I mean, we know the neuro, the neuro, or the um, neuro ICU 
uses it almost constantly, but they do give it as infusions. And I will say their patients don't typically get overloaded. I think it's better to do it as a short burst because then you, as a bolus, because then you see whatever impact you're going to have. And especially if you're giving it with the three percent or uh, with the furosemide, sorry, the benefit there is you give the hypertonic. I always just say, make sure the hypertonic has started running before you give the bolus of Lasix. And that kind of synergistic effect hits the kidneys at the exact same time-ish that it gives you more of a, okay, now I'm going to watch and see if the patients respond. And I would say if this guy's urine output didn't increase with that, so let's say, you know, he's not LASIK naive or anything like that. So I give him 160 milligrams of IV LASIK, uh, IV furosemide with my 100 ml of 3% saline and his urine output doesn't barely increase, I can almost guarantee you that guy's headed towards dialysis. And I, I would probably pull the trigger for reaching for CRRT at that exact moment because I know that if, if he didn't respond to that, he's not going to respond to anything. All right. So they do go ahead and give this patient a furosemide stress test. They even say, hey, what the heck? And they give him some 3% saline with it. And he actually has a not wildly positive, but a positive response. He's able to put out two, 300 cc's of urine over the next couple hours. So in that time, also, the patient is starting to intermittently uh, desat, and he's having more trouble breathing. Somebody puts an ultrasound probe on him, and they see a reduced uh, LVEF around the 30%, maybe even a suggestion of some diastolic failure, mild RV strain. Um, so they're worried about his lungs. They add some low-dose epinephrine. They think this is just a stress response, but they are eager to get some of this fluid off him, and it seems like maybe they can do that by diuresis. How would you go about diuresing this guy, and, and do you think your hypotonic may help? Yeah, absolutely. And so let's say he got 300 in the, uh, even with pretty bad injured kidneys, I would say 300 mLs within that first hour to two hours is believable. And so the first thing that I would say is, all right, I will work on the diuresis in every way that I can. And in this guy, I would basically just say, let's put him on, you know, 3%, 100 mLs, Q8 hours with 160 milligrams of IV perosamide Q6 or Q8 hours. And then I would talk to them about, so if I can get his blood pressure a little bit better with my 3%, what should we cut off with our vasopressors? And so if he's hep rest and he's reduced EF and he actually has some RV strain and RV, uh, I guess not failure, but RV strain as well, the first thing that I would start talking to them about is, okay, if you added the epinephrine, can we get him off the norepi? So then the norepi is just causing a lot of squeeze in both the systemic vascular resistance and the pulmonary vascular resistance to make it harder on his heart. And so, I mean, I'm assuming you, you said he's on, I think, phenylephrine and vasopressin. And yeah, if they want to do a little bit of epi to give him a little bit of extra squeeze, that's great. And so what I would hope is we can decrease the afterload kind of what we're doing and, of course, giving him a little bit the ionotropic effect will um, will help. Now, this is where I would not be surprised at all if the 3% started to have even more benefits in this guy. One of the other major benefits that you get from hypertonic solutions in general, but 3% specifically, is you stimulate atrial natriuretic peptide and nitric oxide. 
So your two most potent stimuli for ANP is stretch of the right atria and hypertonicity of the right atria. So if I give him another little 100 mLs of that 3%, probably going to help his pulmonary, uh, his pulmonary vascular resistance decrease, helping the right side at least a little bit. The other thing that it works as a great preload, so because you do pull that volume into the blood vessels real quick, helps as a preload for both the RV and the LV, that I would think we might actually start pushing this guy a little farther onto the, the correct side of his Frank Starling curve, and it would make me a little curious if not just sepsis is causing a problem for this guy, but if true volume was as well. Basically, the patient that you presented there, the way that I'm picturing this now is, he has a lot of stuff going on. You know, he's neck fast, he's septic, he's all these kinds of things. Does he have true, what I would consider volume overload, where the volume itself is its own specific problem uh, for this gentleman, either for his heart and his lungs, obviously, and all of that, which then that's basically where you have the, you know, either poor forward flow or excessive venous congestion or both. And so that's what I think we probably have going on with this guy. Okay. So you're, you're setting him up on some scheduled 3% and furosemide, maybe much in the same way that some people might try to throw albumin at him. Um, yep. So he's still kind of struggling throughout this resuscitation, they are able to get some volume off him. Um, but he takes a couple of other hits along the way. And by the time you see him the next day, despite his initially reassuring response, his urine output has continued to dwindle to where he's essentially anuric. So uh, the team overnight went ahead, placed a dialysis catheter, and started him on CRRT. Um, and they've been attempting to dialyze him for the past several hours, but they've been limited by hypotension. Whenever they start running their circuit here, they're able to uh, filter his blood, but really not take any ultrafiltration, um, even to match what he's getting in. Uh, whenever they try, he gets profoundly hypotensive, and in a couple of cases, he almost coded. Is there a role here for hypertonic saline? Could that help us facilitate his uh, dialysis and maybe some fluid removal? Yes, absolutely. And this is definitely one of the times where I would consider more of an infusion base as opposed to just giving it as boluses. Because I will, and this is like kind of a, a foot stomping moment for anybody listening that you have a CRRT or any kind of dialysis patient with right heart failure. These are the patients who you have to watch like a hawk. Because if you think about it, where that dialysis catheter is, is right in his, you know, RA, RV, cavoitrial junction, anything like that. When we are taking UF, it is very important to think about where we are taking that from in a patient. So we are essentially robbing his preload. Wherever he is on that Frank Starling curve, as soon as we start pulling true UF, we are taking it directly from his RV. So he, if he's preload dependent, like you know many of these RV failure guys are, that is one of the reasons that these patients are the scariest ones to dialyze or to do CRRT on because they can. This is unfortunately seen this happen many, many times where they're kind of doing okay. You know, maybe they're tolerating a negative 10 to 15 an hour or something like that. Then you try and bump them up to negative 50 an hour 
and they do that. They either throw this crazy arrhythmia, their blood pressures just drop like way faster than you would expect from just a mild fluid change like that. And so in my opinion, those are the guys that you basically have to say, the RV failure is one of our biggest concerns, so we have to address that. Now, number one, making sure that they have adequate preload is important. And so if you truly want to give someone preload without giving them much volume volume, that is where 3% is really kind of a godsend because it does give you that volume that when you give it, they are essentially pulling more volume into their blood vessels immediately to fix the electrolyte issues. And so even though you're taking away some of that volume from that right side, you're also giving them you know, basically three times as much as you put in with the 3%. So let's just say over, you know, an hour, you're giving him the 100 ml. You got about 300 ml into that vascular space that if you pull, you know, 100, uh, let's say you pull 200 ml out of that, you got the patient net negative 100. You protected the RV because you made sure that even though you took that 100 or the 200, technically he got 300, and then you only added the 100 with the 3%. So I would say, yes, this is one of the times where you would strongly consider that. And kind of as a, a footstop moment for me, whenever I am USing a patient with right-sided failure, I basically just say, I want a mixed venous from that dialysis catheter every four to six hours. So whenever we're changing on how much fluid we're pulling, I want a VBG from that dialysis catheter so that I can watch and see if my UF is truly helping him, if we're seeing that mixed venous, or I guess SCVO2 technically, if we're seeing that SCVO2 increase as I would expect, or if I start to see that decrease, that's your, basically your marker of doom, of you're, you're pulling too much that you're actually causing their cardiac output to decrease. Does that all make sense? That was kind of a lot. Okay, so the move here when you're having hemodynamic instability, when you attempt to take fluid off, is you start uh, infusion of 3%, and maybe in the same kind of doses we're talking about, but really sort of titrating it to their hemodynamics, I mean, to your ability to UF them? Yep. Okay. All right. Um, this patient does wonderfully well. Um you uh, go off uh, on vacation and hand it off to another nephrologist. I, I have to ask probably the elephant in the room here. For anyone who is skeptical about some of these applications for hypertonic saline, the best answer is is data. Where is there evidence for some of these uses? And um, you know, where is there good evidence that we've really shown uh, an impact on patient outcomes? You know, where is there maybe weaker evidence where it's a little more extrapolated and, and where is uh, there really no evidence and you're, you're kind of going by physiology and, and bench research here? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the most important thing there is, of course, we talk about, yep, good evidence. So where is there good evidence? There is good evidence in this situation for using 3% as a diuretic adjunct. So basically, when we talked about it in the very beginning, giving it with your furosemide to help improve urinary output, that's very, very good evidence to the fact that there are multiple randomized controlled trials, multiple everything that show if you do need anything to help diuresis, whether it's, you know, heart failure, pulmonary edema, ARDS, diuretic resistance, any of them, that is where there is actually quite strong evidence. The other thing that actually kind of has some relatively good evidence nowadays is in the setting of cirrhosis. So specifically cirrhosis, volume overload, with ascites, 
there are, I think, two prospective, uh, I don't think they were randomized controlled trials. I think they were just um, trials kind of looking at it, again, to control fluids and volume. And, and again, great evidence, great evidence. Now, the kind of where is there some evidence is just as an IV fluid. And so this is where I'd actually say uh, most of the evidence is kind of in surgical literature about comparing it to you know, your various kinds of IV fluids and just saying, yeah, it works either better in most cases or about equal in most other cases. And that's where I'd say there's, you know, at least good evidence. Using it on CRRT is basically where I'd say there's no evidence. And that's just, you know, my kind of my experience based on what I've seen it in. Um, but many, many nephrologists will use it on dialysis like that patients are difficult to pull some UF on dialysis, so you just run a little bit of that or albumin, same kind of thing. It, it basically fits into the same role as albumin in that situation. We'll uh, park some of the some of those studies and data in the, the show notes here because I'm sure some people will want to follow up on it. But it's a compelling case, definitely. Um, Brian, what are your thoughts on all this? This is uh, definitely not our usual area to tread. Are you convinced? Yeah, it's not our usual area. I have to say, I mean, it, it makes sense to me, right? Physiologically, like you said, and I, you know, I'm in neurocritical care a lot, so I have a lot of experience with three percent. Certainly safe, I think, to use. We use it for, you know, pulling fluid out of the brain. So, I mean, it stands to reason that it would uh, would help do the same kind of thing as we use albumin everywhere else. In fact, as I'm listening to you, I think. I don't, I don't know why I've never thought of that before, right? We, I give boluses of 3% or even more hypertonic saline to pull fluid out of the brain, like I said, and reduce cerebral edema. But then when I have pulmonary edema or um, peripheral edema and I need to shift fluid, I reach for albumin all the time. It never has occurred to me to do hypertonic saline. Yeah, the um, when I trained, when I was a resident over at, uh, Johns Hopkins, there were a couple of the ICUs that would uh, do some of this. You know, they would use hypertonic saline two or three percent as a resuscitative fluid, and usually post-op patients. I mean, I think the it's a relatively low bar to convince people that it's at least fluid sparing. I mean, it, it's obvious that if you get a somewhat comparable hemodynamic effect from a bolus, then you only gave them a fraction of the actual volume. That you know, it's probably a win. I mean, you didn't give them a liter; you gave them a few hundred cc's. Um, I feel like it's more the kind of um, endocrine neurohormonal you know manipulation here uh, that takes a little more proving because it's you know not obvious at the bedside you know that you had some kind of salutary effect on their on their kidneys or on their uh, endothelium or whatever. So I will say, quick shameless plug here: you can actually test and prove the physiology of it especially if you have a urinary catheter. And this is where, again, when we're talking about heart failure literature specifically, obviously the most important thing is to get sodium and water out. That's really what we want. So I'm going to jump back to our patient real quick. And let's say his, his sepsis was getting better, so his blood pressures were getting better, but he was definitely in heart failure volume overload, and his sodium is starting to go low. So let's take a look at that patient. Kidneys have stabilized and all that. Sodium is at 130, and we know, you know, he's pretty sick. So you check his urine electrolytes and his urine osmolality. Urine electrolytes, so, you know, he's, he's conserving sodium. Sodium's like less than 20, and his urine osms are high at like 300, 400. 
the coolest part about this, especially that physiology that I talked about with the RAS system and, and especially with ADH as well, when you give 100 mLs of 3%, you will see, of course, the urinary sodium shoots way up, basically instantly shoots up to kind of the 30s, 40s. And you're thinking, well, yeah, duh, you just gave him a whole bunch of sodium. True, but what you're really seeing there is the loss of that RAS system. So he is now dropping sodium because we shut off the RAS system. And even cooler, even though he's a low-sodium patient and his urinary osms are high, you give a hypertonic solution and you will see that his urine osms decrease. That's one of the, in my opinion, one of the coolest things about it because it will help you understand low sodium. It will help you understand where ADH is coming from and how to miraculously shut off ADH by using a hypertonic solution, which seems like it doesn't make any sense. But at the bedside, you can actually watch and see that. And I think that's one of the coolest parts. Sure. No, it's, you know, it sounds like the patients you, you get in who are hyponatremic from some kind of, you know, solute depleted state or, or hypovolemia or something. And then you give them a little bit of whatever, saline or something, and all of a sudden they start peeing on you. I mean, you've convinced their body that they don't need to hold on to so much volume. Yep. All right. Well, this has certainly been an exploration of, let's say, at, at the very least a controversy, but I think some stimulating stuff. Um, any final thoughts, Sean? What should we take away from all this? And, you know, for any, anyone who wants to be skeptical, what's the, what's the very least you hope that you can convince them of? Fair enough. The least I would hope to convince them of is that 3% is safe. And I mean, luckily, we've got some neuro background here that anybody in a neuro ICU will tell you that it's safe. The, the interesting thing there is the higher percentages, so 7%, 21%, and 24%, of course, all of those do come with kind of the, you know, potential for life, for hemolysis, potential for actually increasing your pulmonary vascular resistance because it actually causes the blood vessels to kind of clump. The 2 to 3% range seems like it is the, you know, best bang for your buck while still being incredibly safe. And so this is what I like about it. You can actually run 3% through a peripheral IV. 3% through a PIV at rates of 50 mLs an hour or less has no significant complications in basically all of medical literature other than like pain if it infiltrates, which almost anything can do that. So that would be my big thing is to at least, if you do have some guy that shows up like me and he's trying to consider this, at the very least know that it is safe, fortunately, and there are you know potentially some big bonuses. Sure, safe to use, so why not experiment? All right, so I'll, I'll, I'll take that and tuck it away with me, um, and I hope you all do the same. Um, we'll call it quits here. Please remember, everyone, these are really just the opinions of those of us on the show, and we're certainly not representing any of our institutions, especially the U.S. military. It's just some opinions, and I hope you're not basing any of your care on these ideas alone. Go out, do some research, do a little reading, talk to your teams, and see where you want to go with it. Other than that, we will talk to you next time. <laughs>